Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. church. Good morning and welcome to our house. I'm so glad you're here today. I want to say again, if it's your first time with us or if you've been coming here recently, we are so glad that you are here. We want you to know we've been praying for you. We are thankful for you. And we hope that you'll find what so many of us have found, that this, uh, this, this place, this church, it's more than a church. Uh, it's really a faith family. I think you've heard that already this morning, that uh, we're striving to be a group of people who love God and love each other well. We're not perfect. In fact, we're fine with acknowledging we are perfectly imperfect. Uh, But because of Jesus, uh, we are striving to live life in a very different way. Uh, We believe that Jesus offers um, the best possible life you could ever imagine. And and, and as we walk through this series together, we're in the middle of a series called Seeing Jesus. This is what we're praying. We're praying that Jesus, we want to see you because we want to see your face and we want to follow your lead. We, We believe that you can see Jesus, that you can experience him, that you can have a real relationship with him. We're not, we're not talking about somebody that we're going to a museum to, to look at it and admire through the glass. We're not, we're not studying some historical figure to, so we can get all the facts straight or, or know all that we can know about someone who lived some 2,000 years ago. We believe that Jesus is alive. You, you can amen that. Jesus is alive. That's a big deal. And we believe you can see him. And you can follow him. And you can have a relationship with him. And you can do life with him. And you can follow his lead. And he will lead you into into real, lasting life. Life without end. That's what we believe. And today, as we kind of lean into this this together, this is where I want you to, to go. I want you to think about this idea. that In a world full of of half-truths and mistruths, Jesus wants you to see the truth. We live in a world that's so complicated in so many ways, so full of so many different versions of the truth, but in this context, in this world today, Jesus wants you to see the truth. In the 1600s, um, there was a man who lived in the Netherlands at the time, and in, 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 in that time it was a a large trade city called Middleburg, and he was uh, an eyeglass maker, spectacle maker. He made glasses for people. They would come in, and he would make glasses so they could, you know, they could could see better. And one day, as the story goes, uh, there were a couple of kids in his shop playing with the lenses, and they realized that if they put a couple of those lenses together, they could see the weather vane on a nearby church bigger, better. It was larger. It was magnified, and he was intrigued, so he went over, and he started playing with the lenses too, and sure enough, he figured out it worked. And of course, his mind began to race with all the possibilities of, of how you could use this and what you could do with this. And so he, he, he kept experimenting and he, he put the two lenses in a tube. And in 1608, a man by the name of Hans Lippershey invented the telescope. 
Now, to be fair, there's some dispute over who actually invented this, but a lot of historians give Hans Lippershey the credit. The, the, the idea that you could take a convex lens and a conclave lens, put them together at, at such a distance, and use them like this to look through and to see things that are far away as if they're near, to enlarge them, to magnify them, and to see them better. Now, this is important. Some of you know this is important because you have trouble seeing things that are near to you. <laughs> Because you're getting older. You can amen that too, right? Yeah, we get this. We, we need this ability to magnify things and see things better, especially if things are right in front of us and we can't see them. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to the eye doctor. I needed to get my contact prescription updated so I could order some more contacts. They won't let you do that until you get a, a new prescription. So I went back, met with the doctor. No big deal. Come out. Not only did I need to order contacts, but I really needed to order some new glasses, too. Some of you don't even know I wear contacts or glasses, but I mostly wear my glasses in the morning or at night. Sometimes, on occasion, I'll wear them during the day if my eyes are really bothering me. And this happened a couple of weeks ago. So I wore my glasses. My last pair of glasses I bought, they're like 10 years old. They're bent up. You know, people have stepped on them. You know, my kids have torn them off my face. They're, they're barely hanging on, but I hardly ever wear them, so I never have cared, but... This day, when I had to wear them to work, I was like, this is embarrassing. It's time to get a new pair of glasses. So I go up front, and I meet with a lady at the shop. And, yeah, I'm like, I need contacts, but I also need glasses. So she pulls up the information, and my wife is there. My kids are there. They're there to help me pick out some new frames, some new glasses. And, and that's when she tells me that not only do I need glasses, which I knew that. That's why I was there. But I needed bifocals. Yeah, that's what my kids did. They started laughing at me. They're like, you're old, Dad. I'm like, thanks a lot bifocals what are you talking about it's it's terrible you know i'm getting old it's true physically we get this like the older you get sometimes for some of us it's harder to see i think that's true spiritually too though and i want to lean into this but i want you to know i'm not casting judgment here because i've experienced this too but i think i think this is true i've seen this in my own life i've seen this in the lives of other people i know that sometimes for people of faith the older you are, the longer you've been following Jesus, the harder it is to see him sometimes. Have you experienced that? Sometimes it's our people of faith. It's us who've been following Jesus for a long time, for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or some of you even 50 years. Like the older you get and the longer you've been following Jesus, the harder it is to see him. And what happens is, even though you've known him for a long time, even though you've been following him for a long time, what happens for a lot of us is that we're not living lives full of faith. We're living lives in fear. And you would think it would be the opposite. You would think it would be our older members, those of us who've been following Jesus for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, that any time a new problem arose or a storm came our way or the church was going through a bumpy time, you think it would be our older members, our people of faith who've been following Jesus for a long time, who would be the ones to say, hey, don't worry. I've been following Jesus a long time. I've seen this happen before. Let me tell you, God is faithful. God will always provide. God will see us through. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know how the story's going to end. But let me tell you, I've lived long enough. I've been a follower of Jesus long enough. I've seen this happen before. We're going to be okay. God's got this. But that's not what happens for a lot of us. A lot of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, when those problems arise, when the storms hit, when the tragedy comes, when the church goes through a bumpy time, 
It's our older members, our people of faith who've been following Jesus for a long time, who get scared. Right? This happens for me. Again, I'm not casting judgment. I just want to point out a common phenomenon. This happens in Scripture, and it happens in our lives, too. People of faith who've been following God or following Jesus for a long time, sometimes we have trouble the older we get seeing him. And we're not living lives full of courage and faith and resolve. We end up getting really afraid when the storms hit. Thankfully, when, when we have trouble like seeing physically, we can go to the eye doctor and we can get a prescription. We can get some glasses and it'll fix the physical problem for most of us. We can see better. What do you do when you're having trouble seeing spiritually? What do you do when you're a person of faith and you're having trouble, no matter if you've been following him for a year, a week, a month, or 50 years? What do you do then when you have trouble seeing Jesus? What do you do when you're a person of faith, but you're not living a life of faith? You're living a life of fear. You're, you're afraid. Sometimes in order to see better, you have to, you have to move. You have to make a move. This is what happened for Jesus and his disciples. If you want to, if you have your scripture or your Bible app, you can open up to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus and his disciples um, are traveling, doing ministry, doing what they do. We're in Matthew 16, so we're all down into the story. You can see they've been following Jesus for some time themselves. But Jesus wants his disciples to see something that at least at this point they haven't been able to see, at least not in this way, and he wants them to see something. And the only way for them to be able to see what he wants them to see is he has to... He has to move. He has to take them to a new location so they can see something that they could not see before. So in Matthew 16, uh, they've been in the region of the Sea of Galilee. We're familiar with that. And in verse 13, Jesus decides to take his disciples on a field trip. So Matthew 16, 13 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, if you've read this story before, like I have, and even if you haven't, you're probably not surprised to learn that Jesus is now in a new city. He does this. They travel from place to place, and they do different things from place to place. And, you know, they they travel, they teach, they heal, they feed people, they do ministry, they move on to the next place, they do it again. And now they're in a town called Caesarea Philippi, and and you may be thinking, no, no big deal. That's what I thought, too, if I'm just being completely honest with you, until a few months ago, my wife and I were in Israel, and we got to go to the city, and I realized just how out of the way it was for Jesus to take his disciples there. And just to show you, I want to put up a picture of a map. Some of you, if you still actually carry an, an actual paper Bible to church, I know there's probably two of you here. In the back, there's these maps you probably never looked at, you know. Um, that's okay. In this moment, the map helps, because before this, if you just flip back a little bit, you find out that Jesus and his disciples are in the area of Magdala. That's on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. You'll see a star there where Magdala is uh, near, the, near the middle bottom part of the map. After that, they travel over across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. Again, no surprise to find Jesus in either of these two cities. These two towns are places where Jesus and his disciples have done a lot of ministry, a lot of miracles, a lot of things have happened. Jesus and his disciples often did so much in the area, in the region of the Sea of Galilee. No surprise there. But now here in Matthew 16, 13, we figure out that Jesus has taken his disciples north 25 miles to the town of Caesarea Philippi. Now that's interesting. Because, to be honest with you, there's no reason they should be there. There's no reason they should have traveled to that place. 
Caesarea Philippi, it was, it was known, it was known as, it was largely filled with Gentiles, all right? And it was known as a center of worship, of pagan worship for so many gods. Dating back to the ancient Greeks, this was a town, this was a city, this was a place for the worship of every god you could imagine. And people did unspeakable things in the worship to those other gods. In fact, most God-honoring, Yahweh-worshiping Jews would not be caught dead in this city. Some rabbis would even forbid people to go to this city. And Jesus has led his disciples right to it. Why? You go into this city and you'll see that there's a mountain right there in the middle of the city. And at the base of the mountain, there were these temples built. One of those temples was built by Herod the Greatest, one of three temples that he built in honor and in worship to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, you know, was the Caesar of Rome. He was a man, but he was worshipped there as the son of God. In the back of that temple, it was up against the mountain, uh, uh, at the back of that temple, in the Holy of Holies, if you will, was, was where they would worship the god Pan. It was the grotto of the god Pan. And there, in that place, is where he was worshipped. And then alongside the mountain, there were literally little alcoves and other temples built to every god you imagine. You could imagine gods like Zeus, gods like, you, you just think of it. Every god, every ancient god you could imagine was worshipped in the city. And Jesus has traveled with his disciples 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I know 25 miles may not sound like much to some of you. Some of you probably commute that far or more for work every day or every week. But back in those, day, those days, they weren't loading up, you know, the church van to ride up to Caesarea Philippi. They weren't able to call Uber. They had to walk. This past week, my son and I, we have a tradition uh, every year for opening day for baseball. Any baseball fans in the room? I guess not. Um, we, uh, we went to San Diego uh, to see the Padres play at Petco Park. Our, our hotel was about a mile from the park, and so we would just walk back and forth. It took us about 20 minutes to walk a mile. I don't know if that's average. That's just what we did. So let's just say that, it, that Jesus and the boys, they were walking up from the Sea of Galilee to 25 miles north of Caesarea Philippi. And let's, see, let's say they're going at 20 minutes per mile. That's a pretty good clip for that long a distance. It would take them over eight hours to walk that distance if they did that without stopping. That's a long way to go. For what? To go to a place that most other God-honoring, Yahweh-worshiping Jews wouldn't be caught dead in? What in the world is Jesus doing? Why in the world are they here? Standing here in the center of this place for the worship of every other God you could imagine, Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself. Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or maybe one of the other prophets. But then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Again, they're looking right at the temple of Caesar Augustus where this mortal man is worshipped as the son of God. And Simon Peter speaks up and he answers and he says, You 
You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That was a bold proclamation of faith for Peter to make in this moment, in this location. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ the one we've been waiting for. You are the son of the living God, not just any God, not a God that has come and gone, not, not, not someone who says they're God and we know they're going to die. You are the son of the living God. And when Jesus heard this, listen to what he said, verse 17. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. There's no other way you could know this. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter, which means rock. That's the literal name of his name. Upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Many people have tried to understand what in the world did Jesus Jesus just say, and what in the world did he mean? You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Some people think that what Jesus meant was he was talking about Peter himself. Like, you are Peter, and Peter upon you, I'm going to build my church. And to be fair, they may be right. We all know, if you know the story, God used Peter in some amazing ways to build and to build up his church. That happened. Some people say that, that, that what Jesus was talking about, upon this rock I will build my church, what he's talking about was the actual location, they're, they're standing right beside this huge mountain in Caesarea Philippi. This place that is the center for the, the worship of every god you could imagine. This place where Satan reigns. So in other words, upon this rock or against this rock or in this place where, where, where Satan reigns, I'm going to build my church, I'm going to bring my kingdom from heaven to earth to make things on earth as they are in heaven where I will reign and my kingdom will never end. That could be what he's talking about. But I tend to think that what Jesus was talking about when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I tend to think what he was talking about was the bedrock, foundational truth that Peter just spoke. That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is that confession of faith that is been the bedrock for the church for some 2,000 years. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I actually think that's what Peter thought too, because if you fast forward a few years later, Peter was going to write himself some letters to some different churches, and, and Peter wrote these words to the church. He said, you are coming to Christ, who is what? The living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Peter calls Jesus the living cornerstone. Never, not even once, did Peter ever point to himself and say, I'm the rock, I'm the one who who Jesus has built his church on. What Peter did over and over and over and over again was point to Jesus as the one to whom God was building his church on. Jesus is the rock. He's the living cornerstone. It's the confession of faith that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, that we can build our lives on and that we can build this church on. But that's not all Jesus said, right? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And then he said this, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
Another way to translate that, in fact, maybe a little bit more literal translation would be this. The gates of Hades will not overpower it or prevail against it. All right, so let's go back to this temple of Caesar Augustus that Herod the Great built. And the back of it was this cave where the god of Pan was worshipped. Uh, this cave, uh, it opened up into a great abyss. One ancient historian by the name of Josephus said it was so deep, there was no rope that could measure it. There was no way to know. They had no idea how deep it was. They knew at the bottom of this, of this cave, at the bottom of this abyss, was still water. They knew that much. And they believed that from those still waters flowed the streams around the area and actually filled one of three sources for the Jordan River. And so what you would do from as early as the year 3 BC, if you went to Caesarea Philippi, what was known then as Peneus, the ancient city of Peneus where the ancient god Pan was worshipped, you would go back into this cave and you would take a goat. I know this sounds strange, but this is what they did. And they would throw their offering of a goat into the abyss. And the belief was, if after they did that, they went out to the surrounding streams and the water was clear, then your offering was accepted. But if you saw blood in the water, then the gods had killed your offering and it was not accepted. And this is how they worshipped the god Pan. But either way, either way, your offering was not coming back. Do you know why? Because they believed that this abyss, that this cave, was a literal gateway to Hades. And if you know anything about the ancient god Hades, Hades had one job. You know what his one job was? To keep the dead dead. Whatever went into the great abyss, whatever went into Hades, did not come out. Because Hades had one job, to keep the dead dead. And now Jesus, standing here in this city, in this place where the worship of Pan happens on a daily basis, that is the site and everybody knew this. This is the site where the gates of Hades are. This is where they reside. This is where worship happens. And this is where people offer their, their offerings, their goats, into the cave, into the abyss, into the, through the gate of Hades to their gods. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why did Jesus say that? The, the disciples, to be fair, probably didn't get it in the moment. They were still li living on, on, on this side of the cross. They didn't know how the story was going to end. But, but you know. You know how the story ends, right? Jesus, just a few chapters later, is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to carry a cross on his back. Soldiers are going to nail him to that cross and hang him up in humiliation for all the world to see. He's going to die on that cross. He's going to be dead, dead. And he's going to be buried in a cave. He's going to go into his own cave. And you know what happens when you go into the cave? You know what happens when you go into the abyss? You know what happens when you die? Hades has one job, to keep the dead dead. But Sunday morning on Easter, something happened that had never happened before. When dawn broke that day, you know what happened. Jesus was resurrected. The gates of Hades could not contain Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And now Jesus, standing here with his disciples, says, I'm going to build my church upon this rock, upon this confession. And guess what? The gates, the gates of Hades cannot contain you either. Jesus knew if his disciples could get this, if, they could, if you could get this, if they could get this, they would no longer, not ever, live in fear. They would live full of faith. They would be able to carry this message around the world, even if it meant giving their lives for this message. Why? Because they would know they had nothing to fear. Because even if they lost their life, they had resurrection power. Resurrection power. Why did Jesus travel all the way, 25 miles north, way out of the way to Caesarea Philippi? Because he knew he was about to go to Jerusalem. And he needed them to know that from this point on, he needed them to see this. They would have nothing to fear. Because not only, not only could they see Jesus right now, but they could see this truth. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And when they saw him after the resurrection, they would know that the gates of Hades would not prevail against them either. He wanted them to see this truth, that if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you? If Jesus was here today and he asked this question, who do you say I am? what would your answer be? Who is Jesus? Do you believe he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? A few years later, a man you may have heard of by the name of Galileo heard about this thing called the telescope. And he took the idea and he improved it. And he did something no one had ever done before. He, he made his very own telescope, bigger and better than anybody else had ever done it. And he did something that no one else had ever even thought to do. You know what he did? He took it and he looked up. He looked up. And he applied it to the universe. And Galileo saw things that no one had ever seen before. He saw that there were craters on the moon. He saw Jupiter. He could see stars and constellations that no one had ever seen before because he took these lenses, he looked up. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in your world today. I don't know what problems you're facing. I don't know what storms are raging. I don't know if Jesus hasn't, in fact, led you to a place right now where you're surrounded by competing gods and things vying for your attention and wanting your allegiance. Maybe he's led you to that place so that in that place, Maybe for the first time in a long time, you could just look at him and see him and see that this is true, that he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, and if you believe that, if you can just look at him and believe that, it would change everything for you. But maybe today he's just inviting you to look up. To look up. And to see that this is true. And to see that if we believe what we say we believe about Jesus, it changes absolutely everything. And what it means is we don't have to live from a place of fear any longer. We can live lives full of faith 
Because come what may, you and I have resurrection power. Can you see it? Can you see it? Come what may. Whatever comes our way. Because of this foundational bedrock truth that Jesus Christ is the living cornerstone. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we believe he is who he says he is. It changes everything about us. And what it changes is it means we no longer have to live from a place of fear. We just have to look at him and look up and remember who he is and who we are because of who he is. Church, let's, let's stand. In a world full of mistruths and half-truths, Jesus wants you to see, I believe, this truth. That if we believe he is who he says he is, it changes absolutely everything. And it's why just a few verses later, still standing in that same location, Jesus would look his disciples right in the eye and he would say these words. If any of you wants to be my follower, what do you mean, Jesus? We've, we've been following you for 16 chapters, right? We've been following you. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, you can take up your cross. You can carry an instrument of death on your back with nothing to fear. Because you and I have resurrection power. Who is Jesus? And I want you to see it. He is who he says he is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And if we believe that, if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, it changes everything. Let's sing.